Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 1, 1 through 2. That can be found on page 1 in your pew Bible. If you don't have one of those, feel free to take it um, as a gift from us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over, hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Francis. And good morning to each of you. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And we're so glad that you're here with us this morning as we continue worshiping now through looking at God's word. I'd love to pray and ask Uh, for the Spirit's help as we um, look at the Holy Spirit himself in this series. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, we pray to you in the name of Jesus, at the prompting and leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that in this time of reflecting on your word, that you would open our hearts to understand, to apply, to be not only hearers but doers of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, New York Times columnist uh, Ross Douthit, if you are familiar with Ross, he, he writes uh, an op-ed column for the Times that is uh, kind of focused on morality, religion, politics, those kinds of things. And uh, he is Roman Catholic, and so you can imagine as uh, someone, a person of faith, a Roman Catholic faith, in a place like the New York Times and just New York City, in some of those uh, contexts, he is often a minority in his, in his uh, faith outlook on life. And he tells the story, Ross does, of being at a dinner party in New York with kind of a group of, of elite professionals from the city and writers and thinkers and economists, and they're having this, this dinner party together. And he says, I like to sometimes throw out this, this philosophical dinner party question. So they're all gathered there on the table eating, and, and Ross asks for a show of hands, how many people here believe in ghosts? And he says sort of, not surprisingly, but disappointingly, no hands go up. And the dinner party continues to go on, and this woman sitting next to him, though, leans over and kind of conspiratorially and whispers in his ear, you know, I don't believe in ghosts, but I've seen one. I don't believe in ghosts, but I've seen one. And this is, I think, where we often find ourselves sort of saying, like, well, of course I don't believe in ghosts. This is the 21st century. I'm too smart for that. I don't believe in ghosts, but I've seen one. It reminds me of the quote by the British uh, author Julian Barnes, who says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in ghosts, but I've seen one. I think those capture so well the moment that we live in. And I think they touch on a struggle that we all have as humans living in a context where we sense, I think part of us senses once longs for there to be something more and yet live in a cultural context that affirms regularly that that all there is is what we can see and what we can touch and measure. And Douthat writes this. He says, we don't believe in them, but we keep seeing them. I think this is a pretty solid description of high secular modernity's relationship to all manner of phenomenon. We don't believe in them, but somehow we keep seeing them, keep experiencing them. That's often how we live, isn't it? We, we cling to spiritual while denying its reality. You know, I don't believe in God, but occasionally I pray to him. 
I, I don't believe life really has any purpose, but I still can't help living like it does. I, I don't really believe in any sort of religion, but I'm still a spiritual person. And again, the, the kind of the culturally ascendant scientific philosophical view is one that, that says we are purely physical. Essentially that we are meat computers. I don't know where I first heard that phrase. It's maybe a little bit gross, but it's like they, it just captures the idea, right? That we are kind of muscles on a skeleton with an organic computer for a brain. But if that is who we truly are and all that we truly are, why can't we seem to live like it? Because we regularly we encounter beauty in a work of art or in a national park. I'm so excited on Thursday morning, my family is leaving to drive to that place right there. Glacier National Park will be driving on going to the Sun Road. I can't wait. But whether it's in a national park or just in a walk in the woods in Kansas City or a hummingbird outside your window, or the beauty and allure of sexual intimacy, or a great bottle of wine, or really good steak. We have these moments of, of kind of wonder, of meaning, of transcendence, of joy and delight. And it just awakens this longing, this sense that there has to be something more. Uh, whether it's our obsession with Stranger Things, or, or Stephen King, uh, or the constant barrage of self-help spirituality, we just can't shake the belief that there is more, that our world is more, that we are more. And you can dismiss those transcendent moments, or you can look for answers. Why, even after all this scientific advancement and progress, do we still feel this way? And is there a story that makes better sense of the world as we experience it? And I think there is a story that makes better sense of the reality, of our lived reality that we experience on a regular basis. But there is a huge part of the story that is often forgotten, an essential character that we tend to overlook. And his name is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in the older translations, it's called the Holy Ghost, which you kind of admit is a way cooler name, right? But he's a third member of the Trinity, and it's one of the many sort of mind-blowing things that Christians believe that God is Trinity, that he is one God, but who exists as three equal, distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are made in the image of that God, and it's why we can't shake the spiritual. We are spiritual. And if you only take away one thing from this morning from the message, I hope it is this, that there is so much more to the Holy Spirit's story than you think. There's so much more to the Holy Spirit's story than you think. He appears on the very first page of the Bible and on the very last page of the Bible. He is essential to the work of creation on page one, as well as to the ministry of Jesus and the launching of the church. And so today as we begin this new six-week series on this kind of least understood, most neglected member of the Trinity, we're calling it the story of the Spirit, and we're going to trace his story through the scriptures. And as we look this morning at this opening chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1, we'll look in, in Genesis 2 just a bit as well, what we're going to see is kind of three, I think, pretty stunning truths that are often overlooked about the Spirit in these chapters. And the first one is this, that there is, without the Spirit, there is no God. Without the Spirit, there's no order. And then without the Spirit, there is no us. 
So that's what we're going to kind of be our outlines we walk through today. That there, there is no God, there is no order, and there is no us without the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It's very easy to find. It's page 1 on, in that pew Bible. So you just open it up and find page 1, and we have Genesis chapter 1. And the Bible, you know, it opens with this foundational claim, this foundational statement that it doesn't argue for, it doesn't defend, it just makes the statement that there is a God and that he is the source, the cause of everything that exists. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, in our cultural context, or cultural context, which again is deeply influenced by sort of a materialism, a philosophical naturalism that says that all we, we can see, measure, matter is all that there is, a statement like Genesis 1-1 can be really hard to accept. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But for the original readers of this passage, for the ancient readers of this text, that was not at all a challenge. I mean, for them, they assumed that God or the gods existed. There was no question about that. And they just, of course, assumed that the gods had created the world in which they lived. So the question that Genesis 1 is answering is not primarily, is there a God and did he make everything that's here, but rather, which God created everything and why did he make what he made? And what is our purpose and role in relationship to this God? Ken Roth's doubt it reminds us that we somehow can't shake the sense that even if we don't believe in God, that somehow he's there. For these first readers of these texts, the early readers of Genesis, the basic assumption was that yes, there is God or there is gods. There are gods. The question we want to know is which one is the right one, is the true one, and why did he make what he made? But again, maybe you're wondering, who, who really cares about all this? Isn't this just a lot of sort of philosophical kind of work, apologetic work? But what we discover in these opening verses of Genesis chapter 1 is that the God who creates is more complex than we can imagine. Because he is not just one, there's a plurality to him. There is God in verse 1, in the beginning God created but then in verse 2, you get this, this language of the Spirit of God hovering over the deep. There, again, there's a plurality to the one God who creates. And this immediately raises us for readers, especially here in Genesis chapter 1, is are they the same God? Are they two different gods? Is this one way of, of or two different ways of talking about the same God? And it, wrestling with this truth in Scripture is what led Christians to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity that there is one God who exists in three equal but distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, before you totally tune out here in this conversation about the Trinity and start scrolling Instagram, because I can see, like, I, I get it, like, this is one of those moments where, like, Bill, I don't really know what you're talking about. I don't know if this really matters. Just hang with me for a moment, because the, the Trinity was not one of those things that Christians at some point said, you know, we're, we're just kind of bored. We, we've read the Bible a few times. We need to come up with something new to think about. So let's, let's, let's come up with the Trinity, and just really confuse followers of Jesus, you know, a thousand years later, this is going to really get them. 
No, I mean, the doctrine of the Trinity really began to formulate it as Christians were trying to make sense out of prayer. So Christians came to believe that Jesus was God himself. And Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, pray like this, pray to your Father in heaven. And then Jesus also promised his disciples that he was going to send the Spirit, a helper, to help them to pray. And so early Christians say, okay, we have Jesus, who we believe is God, teaching us to pray in his name to the Father, sort of with the help and power of the Holy Spirit. How do we make sense of how Jesus taught us to pray? The, the formulation of the Trinity that was a very practical way is how do we understand this very basic religious practice of prayer in a Christian way? This is the core of where this began to be formulated. And the doctrine of the Trinity is not designed to explain the mystery, but rather to protect it, to keep it from being distorted, to hold in tension all the truths that are revealed to us in the scriptures and by Jesus himself. So Jesus, the Father, the Spirit. And Christian, again, teaching protects that mystery. I love what C.S. Lewis in his book, his classic Mere Christianity, when he's writing about the Trinity, says this. I think this is so good. He says, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier. Lewis is acknowledging this is difficult to understand, but it's not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. And he goes on to say this. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. Okay, now what does all this have to do with Genesis chapter 1? Well, as we read Genesis 1 and 2 in light of Jesus and his teaching, we understand that the Spirit is not just an impersonal force, not just wind or breath, not just the breath of a solitary, lonely God who created out of lack or need. No, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. He is God himself, one person in the tri-personal God. Now, one of the difficulties for studying the Holy Spirit in the Bible is that the, the Greek word is pneuma, the Hebrew word is ruach, and those are the words for, for wind, for breath, for spirit. And so you have to discern when you're reading, both sort of contextually and theologically, what, how should we translate this word here? Should it be breath? Should it be wind? Is it a reference to the Holy Spirit? But all this means that without the Holy Spirit, we do not have a truly, fully, and Christian understanding of God. So when Christians say, we believe in God, as we confessed in the words of the Nicene Creed, which was an early formulation trying to capture this true teaching about who God is in the Bible— we say we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the name of the one true God who Christians confess. But again, maybe you're wondering, Bill, like, who really cares? Isn't there just a lot of kind of philosophical word games that don't really make any practical difference when I'm at work or paying the bills or going to school or whatever it might be? And again, this is where I think Lewis is helpful. In that same section, he writes this. He says, I, I warned you that theology is practical. The whole purpose for which we exist is thus to be taken into the life of God. But he says, wrong ideas about that life will make it harder and here's what, here's what Lewis means. Imagine this, you know, for example, I'm dating my wife. We, we've married for almost 11 years now, but when we were first dating, um, imagine we're going out on dates, and, and I learned about Rachel early on. She tells me, you know, I have, I have celiac disease, which means I, I can't eat gluten. 
So I, I can't eat like bread, pasta, that kind of thing. But I said, you know, actually, Olive Garden is one of my favorite restaurants, and that's, that's the only place I want to take you. And, and I know you're telling this, this truth about you, but like, I, don't, I don't really like that. I like to think of you as a person who can eat unlimited breadsticks at Olive Garden. Uh, and, that, and that's where we're going to go. That's, that's how I like to think of you. I mean, how long is that relationship going to last, right? It's not going to last at all. Like, I can't really know her if I'm not willing to, to know all of who she is and, and how she's been made. But how quickly do we do that with God? I, don't, I like to think of God this way. And I don't like this part of the scriptures, or I don't like this description of him, but I like this part, and I kind of like to think of him this way. But you can't know and have a real relationship with, with another human person, much less the creator of the universe, if you're not willing to know them on the own terms of which they've revealed themselves to be. And the world in which the biblical writers invite us is one where God exists, and he is tri-personal, and while it takes the whole story to fill out this picture of the one true and living God, the foundation is laid for us right here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So without the Holy Spirit, there is no God, at least not a con- Christian conception of God, but also without the Spirit, there's no order. Without the Spirit, there is no order. Because so what exactly is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, doing here in Genesis 1, verse 2? Well, he's bringing about order. He's bringing about order. And this is why, as human beings, we love order. It's why we're always looking for meaning and pattern and purpose in life. We're made in the image of a God who creates order. Because in verse 1 of Genesis, you have this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's kind of the summary of everything. Heavens to earth is kind of the totality, the A to Z, the beginning and the end. God creates it all. But then you get this in verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So God creates, but it's not yet ready for human habitation. It's not yet ready. This is not a place where humans can flourish, can live, can thrive. It's it's unordered, it's chaotic, it's an uninhabitable wasteland. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters like a mother bird preparing a nest, preparing a place for her chicks, for her eggs. One scholar describes it like this. I love this. He says this, Hovering like an eagle over the primordial abyss, the Almighty Spirit prepares the earth for human habitation. The Spirit is at work bringing order. And I love that poetic imagery. And artist Kelly Cruz, who leads the four-chapter gallery at our downtown campus, if you've never had a chance to go uh, to our downtown campus, especially the new facility that they have on a first Friday when the art gallery is open, you should definitely do that at some point. They actually have a big block party coming up on October 1st. Um, but it's an incredible place. And Kelly Cruz does the work of leading that gallery. And she's currently working on a painting based, kind of inspired by Genesis 1, verse 2. And here's actually a sneak peek of that painting. And she wrote us an email this week, and she said this. She said, in this large work, I've carefully dusted gold mica powder over the edges of the paper. God's Spirit hovers near over all the chaos, ready to form and order the deep. And then she says this, this is beautiful. She says, it is awe-inspiring thought that the Spirit of all creation that ordered the formless cosmos orders each and every human soul. And then as you move on in Genesis 1, you have God said, let there be light, and 
etc. in the seven days of creation. But this is where I think we tend to lose so many people, where science and faith seem to conflict. But that's often because we approach Genesis with our questions of, is there a God, and, and where did it all come from, and how did he make it all? What are the processes? What are the mechanisms? But the ancient readers of the text, again, they didn't have this question. They assume, of course, there's a God or the gods, and of course those gods are the source of the world in which we live. We want to know which God and why and what purpose and order. It's so easy for us to sort of almost kind of colonize the Bible with a modern cosmology. But the original readers readers were asking different questions. So think of it like this. We tend to view the seven days of creation like a house story, when really it's more of a home story. A house story rather than a home story. What does that mean? Well, about six, seven weeks ago, we, our family moved into a new house, which we love. And you could ask me, Bill, tell me about your new house. And one way I could answer that question is to tell you about the physical structure and how it was built. So I could say, you know, it was built in 1969. It's a ranch-style house. It has a a brick facade um, with, you know, this kind of uh, construction. And and maybe I could even do some research and find out the timber was sourced from here. And, you know, they poured the foundation on, on this day. And then about three weeks later, they framed it out. And then they added the HVAC and the wiring here. And you're already bored with me just making this illustration up, right? But that, that's one way to tell, if you ask, tell me about your house, I could tell you that story. But if you said, Bill, tell me about your home, I mean, I might give some of those details, right? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a ranch, it's built in 1969, but you know, right when you walk in, there's this great room, and, and we put bookcases in it, and we call it the library, and it's where we go to read. And there's this, this room with lots of great light in the walkout basement, and we, we made that the craft room. We painted the floor, and um, we added some artwork, and that's the kids, you know, they play, and they, they do their crafts. And there was this finished basement area, and we hung a TV on the wall, and we got a, a couch, and we call it the family room. And upstairs, there's this place, with a, a, there's a fireplace, and we got this big cozy couch, and we call it the living room. It's where we go to relax. That's a home story. You know, there's all this great light that comes in. We just love it, and it, it's cozy, and it's, it's a place of, of rest. And A home story, you're saying, this is what we use this room for, and this is how we decorate it, and this is why it's here, and we call it this, and we've named it. Genesis 1 is much more of a home story. Again, we get some house story details, but we don't get all the ones that, as modern kind of scientific readers, might want. And sometimes in our obsession with those questions, we miss the home story questions that the Bible is telling us. You see the difference between those two. If you want some resources uh, on kind of how to read Genesis 1 more thoughtfully in light of how the original authors and readers would have understood these, I'd recommend two books. John Salehammer's book, Genesis Unbound, is really well done. And also John Walton's book, uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1. So they're both a little bit different. They both come out from slightly different perspectives, but they're both Old Testament scholars who affirm the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture, but who've done really good work to think about how would the original readers have understood And what questions would they have been asking that Genesis 1 is answering? So if you feel like science is a a hurdle to your faith, yeah, you shouldn't. Because the first scientists were Christians. And, And think about it. If the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring order, meaning, and purpose, this means that the work of science, the work of science is to discern the order that the Spirit has woven into creation. That's science. And an attempt to understand the order that has been infused into our world by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So instead of seeing faith and science as enemies, science should be seen as a way to better understand and worship our triune God who has ordered our world with such beauty and complexity and wonder. And no matter what you do, whatever your vocation is, if part of your job is to bring order out of chaos, then you are already joining the work of the Spirit. Engineers do that. Leaders do that. Parents do that. Construction workers bring order out of chaos. Teachers, police officers. If part of your vocation is to take situations of chaos and mess and disorder and bring order to those places, you're already joining the Spirit on His work. So invite him to work with you. Ask for his help. He, he's literally been doing it from the beginning of all creation. He's the spirit who hovers over the waters like a mother bird preparing a nest for us. Without the spirit, there is no order. So without the spirit, there's no God. There's no order. And finally, without the spirit, there's no us. Because if you turn uh, the page all the way over to Genesis chapter 2, you get... Verse 7, which says this, Then the Lord God formed the man, the human, out of dust from the ground and breathed, against this language of, of ruach, of spirit, into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, the human, became a living creature. A living creature. And one of the things that we discovered in archaeology is there are multiple creation accounts from the ancient Near East, Babylonian, Akkadian, different kinds of creation myth stories. And again, there are other cultures and religions attempts to answer the question, which God created, why did he create? And all these other accounts show the gods creating um, the world and people out of wars and chaos um, or because they're in need in some way. I and mean, one of the, the stories talks about how the gods were tired of like doing work, and so they created humans as their slaves to, to do this work that they didn't want to do. It's all kind of, it's messy, it's sloppy, it's violent. And the biblical account is so different. That we're not created out of war. We're not created out of violence or because the gods need us to do work that they don't want us to do or that they don't want to do. Rather, we are handmade with the very breath of God, the very spirit of God, the image of God. And yes, we are designed to serve God, but in partnership with him, to be kings and queens over the earth, to reign with him in order and beauty. There is an intimacy, a love, a dignity in the garden unlike any other creation story from the ancient Near East. Yes, yes, we are dust. And Genesis affirms that. We are, made, we are dirt creatures. We are made out of the dirt of the ground. We are dust. And we feel that, right? We, we feel that frailty. We feel it as we age. We, we feel it when we get hurt or when we're sick. But we are so much more than just dust. We are so much more than dirt. You are God-breathed. Every one of you. Every one of you is God-breathed. Remember that word is also translated spirit. At the core of who we are is physical and spiritual, seen and unseen, material and immaterial. Every person you meet, the ones that you love and like and enjoy and the ones that you can't stand are, every one of them is breathed by God. It's his very breath, the breath of life in them. Bears the divine image 
is more than just a meat computer. Which would be a great band name, by the way. Meat computers. Every person you meet has been breathed out by God. And, And a rejection of that spiritual part of who you are it's a rejection of, of who you truly are. It's a rejection of yourself. And it's also a rejection of the God who created you, which means that without the Spirit, we'll close with this, there is no hope. Julian Barnes, who was the uh, atheist who said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Uh, he wrestles deeply with the fear of death, and, and he wrote a memoir called Nothing to be Frightened of about his sort of experience of of being afraid of death his whole life. And yet listen to this book review in the New York Times. It says, For comfort, Barnes turns toward the strict regime of science, and here is little comfort indeed. We are all dying, even the sun is dying. Homo sapiens is evolving towards some species that won't care about us whatsoever, and our art and our literature and our scholarship will fall into utter oblivion. Every author eventually will become an unread author, and then humanity will die out and beetles will rule the world. A man can fear his own death, but what is he anyway? Simply a mass of neurons? The brain is a lump of meat, and a soul is merely a story the brain tells itself. Individuality is an illusion. Scientists find no physical evidence of a self. It is something we have talked ourselves into. We do not produce thoughts. Thoughts produce us. The eye of which we are so fond properly exists only in grammar. Stripped of the Christian narrative, we gaze out on a landscape that, while fascinating, offers nothing one could call hope. Barnes says sometimes at night he is roared awake, pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, awake, alone, utterly alone, beating his fists, shouting, oh no, oh no, oh no, in an endless wail. But church, that is not our story. And it does not have to be your story. Because Jesus on the cross, he took that oh no, that oh no, that that endless wail of death on the cross that we rightly deserve. He stood in our place in that awful moment of the abyss of death. He died the death that Julian Barnes so rightly fears. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And if you place your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus, you are united to him and the Holy Spirit can raise you from the dead as well. That is a promise from the scriptures. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will also give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Friends, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, who conquered death, can also give life to your mortal bodies. And the question is this, have you thought deeply about that moment of death? Have you reckoned with the oh no, the oh no, the oh no of death? And have you trusted Jesus' promise that he can defeat and conquer even death? Will you today, will you right now, if you never have? There is no other way to hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus. 
knowing that your spirit is the one who has given us life and the only one who can give us new life, new birth. For those of us who experience that new life, that new birth, that, that new creation life that the Spirit brings about when we place our faith and hope and trust in Jesus, would we be reminded afresh of the precious life that we have, the promise that we have, the hope that we have in the face of death. And maybe if we're here and we're realizing, I've, I've been sitting in church a long time, but I don't think I've ever experienced that new life. Maybe I just walked in today because a friend invited me and I didn't really want to be here. But something's happening and, and I, I'm longing for that new life. Would the Spirit meet you and bring new life about? brings a trust and a love and a warmth of affection for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.